Hello, friends, and welcome back to another little bonus episode of 30 Pop. As I mentioned last week on Election Day 2020, back in early November, I had the great privilege of hopping on a call with two of the original founding members of the comedy troupe called Fire Sign Theater. Fire Sign Theater was wildly influential on the whole comedy scene back in the late 60s and throughout the 70s. The first part of my call was with David Osmond, and then just about the time we were wrapping up, fellow founder of Firesign Theater, Phil Proctor, hopped on the call, and we dove even deeper into their history. It was so much fun, and I'm very excited now to pick up where we left off last week with part two of my conversation with David Osmond and Phil Proctor of Firesign Theater. Enjoy. <laughs> Hi, Dave. Hi, Phil. We haven't seen each other for quite a while. No, but I've been enjoying. Dave's been posting uh, wonderful pictures from the past, and uh, it's really been fun, David, to see some of the stuff that you've got. You know. Well, you you're cleaning up your garage, so yeah, that's right. You're finding a few things yourself. That's well, right. I pitched everything. I I told him about stand up records. I told him how it was fifty years ago. If you remember, do you remember? Was I there? <laughs> And what kind of a unique act we were doing on the radio to produce this album. Because as you remember, it was totally improvised. Yes, that's right. Uh, with an emphasis on the imp. <laughs> yeah. And what was fascinating about it for me was, first of all, I mean, just the outlet of being able on a weekly basis to go into a radio studio and reach an audience that wanted to hear us you know, with material that we could create entirely uh, on our own. That's the dream. And, yeah, and it was, I mean, what a thrilling opportunity that was. And, of course, I'd been a great admirer of Bob and Ray and Ernie Kovacs when I grew up, uh, as well as Stan Freeberg and others. But basically, the major influences were those three people. And Bob and Ray, they mastered the art of the put-on. You know, and, and the two man interview that, yeah, we that, that sure. format and that great silly play that they had between them. And Ernie Kovacs, of course, was experimenting constantly with new technology. Hmm. So, Firesign Theater for me was the perfect blend of being able to work with other partners who would go along with the joke, if you will, and use as much of the new technology as we possibly could. One of the reasons why Firesign became famous was because of the introduction of FM radio. Because, hmm. you know, previous to that, you make a record and you send it out there and somebody, me, would take it home and put it on our on a record spinner and listen to it, you know. And that's why the crepitation contest became popular, you know, certain underground records and things. Because it was no censorship. It was just you you know, your your own opinion about things. And that, of course, changed with radio. Uh, but FM radio allowed people, especially the college students, to play a long-form comedy record, which we pioneered uh, without commercial interruption. And that's one of the reasons why we became popular in the colleges. Hmm. You know, they could play an entire side of one of our crazy, surrealistic, complicated, uh, layered albums, you know, and it created a certain stir. Prior to that, 
people would, and I, we've heard these stories so many times, Dave, I'm sure you'll, you'll agree. So many people would t- get a record of Pyrocent Theater. They discovered it. They said, oh my God, I'm not the only crazy one. There are other crazy people out here too. And then, so they'd go to a friend and say, you got to hear this. Right. And, and put it on the record player. And then they sit down and listen to it together, which, of course, would bring out different meanings, uh, which I found that depending on the people you're listening to the material with, you get different understandings that you might not have even heard somebody over there. hears it. it's not like they go, oh, oh, that's funny. But for me, it was always like psychically I could hear different things because it's like putting earphones on, you know, more was revealed to me through the the minds of others that were that were sharing hmm. the experience okay so it wasn't entirely improvised right dave that be, because mark time came out of it of a written piece of material that you brought in right yeah we we would bring in two or three page scripts or, yeah. or commercials for the other guys and hand them out you can actually see us doing this on youtube right now because the first episode of Fools in Space, which was our show for um, Sirius XM. Seriously. 20, seriously, 20 years ago. But you can see us do this work live on this, uh, on this one broadcast on, on YouTube. Check that out. Because you can see how we were working together very loosely to create this show. Yeah, yeah, yeah very loosely, very informally around a big table. I mean, that's how Radio Free Oz started, hmm. you know, around a table in a studio at KPFK late at night with incense burning, you know, and and the four of us finding one another and discovering that we are, we're all astrologically fire signs, you know, and uh, two Sagittarians, David's one of them, Peter was the other, me, a Leo, and unfortunately, Phil Austin and Aries. Uh, we've lost Austin. Yeah, we've lost Austin. But people say, where, where did the name come from? Exactly. That's and it, because the very first time we performed together, I mean, the very first time the four of us were in the same room together working, Peter said, can I introduce you as the Oz Firesign Theater? Yeah. We all said, sure. sure. <laughs> who knew? Who knew what? You know, sure. we couldn't keep Oz because it was a... Uh, uh, Heavily owned by, by a lot of other people. No, well, it was the Disney sent us a cease and desist letter, right? Yeah, you listen uh, when they send those. Yeah, Disney, the, the rat, you know, the rat is known to be litigious. But uh, they were uh, developing, I believe, Return to Oz, a feature, yeah. right? Musical mm-hmm. feature. And so they said you can't use it. Of course, we were too naive to say, but we're from Australia. I was just making reference to uh, you know, where we come from. You know, what's the matter? But it was fine. The Firesign Theater was confusing enough. You yeah. know? So tell me this. You came together in 68. Did you come together as four friends deciding to do comedy together? Or did you come together as four comedians who decided to be friends? Like, how did the relationship form? Mm-hmm. For me, I came to the Firesign Theater as a total stranger. Okay. All right. Now, I have a book. And it's called Where's My Fortune Cookie? And as David well knows, it tells the story of uh, Peter Bergman and me on the road surviving the Golden Dragon Massacre, which was a a major mass shooting up in San Francisco Mm -hmm. at a restaurant. Five killed, 11 wounded. And in that book, I tell the story of how the shooting was predicted to me by a psychic friend. Hmm. She predicted it very accurately. So same thing happened with Firesign Theater. I was hanging out. You have to read the book to get the details. I was hanging out with Peter Fonda and Brandon DeWilda. 
And we heard that there was going to be a demonstration which was to protest a curfew that they were trying to put on the Sunset Strip revelers at that time, people openly smoking pot and resisting the, the Vietnamese war. So we showed up for the demonstration and sure enough, LA police were, were on one side and the sheriffs on the other, and they did a pincer movement so that they could get everybody in one place and declare an unlawful assembly. And then they started moving in with their you know, sticks and everything. But prior to that, we had sat down in front of a very popular nightclub and said, we will not be moved. I sat down on an open copy of the LA Free Press. I pulled it out from under my ass and I had sat on Peter Bergman's face. It said, KPFK newsman, Peter Bergman, interviews returning Vietnam War veterans. I'd gone to Yale with Peter Bergman. He wrote the lyrics for two musicals I starred in, written by Austin Pendleton. Booth is back in town and Tom Jones. I was Tom Jones. And so I knew Peter and had lost touch with him over the years. Mm -hmm. So I, I called him up the next day and he said, yeah, I'm the Wizard of Oz. And I thought, oh, man, he's really gone. And I said, no, no, I do a show called Radio Free Oz. Why don't you come down and play with us? And I go down and I meet this guy over here. And what were you doing on the show? Were you producing? You know, Austin was producing it. Yeah, Phil Austin was had been uh, who was working. Uh, he was the literature and drama director. He was a staff member at KPFK. So, yeah, it was a late night show. I think by it was on at eleven. Eleven first went on with yeah. Paul J. Robbins. It was first on, and then uh, so Phil was the producer. And once you got the microphones on, then he would just go down into the studio, and he and Peter would chat. Uh -huh. uh, the Peter. Phil Austin chat is basic to the Firesign Theater. Hmm. He would, they would talk together in a way that the rest of us were like, what? Yeah, they were, they were just amazing together. And so that's where that started. And it was what they call a driveway broadcast. You stop in your driveway because you're listening. And uh, that's the way it was for me. I loved the show. I listened yeah. to it all the time. And then I, you know, I met Peter. Did you go to volunteer at KPFK? Well, I had I'd been there for I'd been working there, and then That's I volunteered for for a uh, a fun drive. That's right. Mm -hmm. And that Peter had come down and joined into the very first fun drive for this radio station. And that's where he got Radio Free Oz because he was a huge, it was, he was a natural. He had the gift of gab, believe yeah, me. And, sure. and also, you know, it, such a quick mind that he was both political and funny at the same time. You know, in, in his later years, he became more serious because things deteriorated politically and socially in this country. But he was a great straight man. Because he was so twisted. Right, Dave? <laughs> so we could throw stuff off of him and he would pretend to be the host and, you know, trying to maintain some kind of control over his show. And the show was the first call-in new age talk show in the world, really. And yeah. Right? So he kind yeah. of established that. But what Fireside did was, because he was so straight, we could become all kinds of different characters. And now, when was it that we created the uh, Oz Film Festival for him? Oh, that would be that would be the very first thing. That was 
This, as far back as 1966, I think we did that because then the next year we, we were on the air and, uh, and went on to KRLA to do Radio Free Off. That's a commercial station. Yeah, a big commercial right. station. But it was a commercial station that reached 100,000 watts. It was border to border. We were everywhere. 100,000 watts? At the end of 67, radio, we were everywhere. Okay, but, but the point of, of my remembrance of that, Dave, <clears throat> that we went way out. Let's see. You played Raul Zayas, was that his name? You have a very good memory. Yes, I played Raul Zayas, who was a <laughs> filmmaker from Latin America. And uh, he, he, what he liked to do best of all was to uh, make motion pictures, that is, pictures that are really moving. And so his great idea was to take up into the Andes, he had uh, with a big uh, panoramic camera, you know, it takes... Yeah the full 360 degree. And what uh, Raul wanted to do for this was to push the camera off and, and film it while it rolled all the way down the Andes, just <laughs> an action movie, like action painting. Very exciting for him. But then we also had the terrible uh, Russian filmmakers, I recall. Huh? Well, I played a French filmmaker. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah it was Jean-Claude Jean-Claude. And we had a creative film called Two Weeks with Fred, which was to follow my, my friend Fred around Paris and to, to film everything that he do for two weeks. Uh, when he is sleeping, you go to what we call the Théâtre Puce, the flea theater, little theater, and you bring your sleeping bag. When he is sleeping, you sleep. When he has breakfast, you eat something, you know, and, uh, uh, and so on for two weeks was a you know an incredible experience for the the audience, which would change, of course, a little bit. And then Phil Austin, yeah. he, he played Jack Love, who was a leather fetishist filmmaker. He made films for the bedroom. What did he call them? Film something like that. Films for the bedroom. Something like that. Yeah. And and here's the thing, he wanted to show a clip from one of his movies, Blondie Pays the Rent, mm-hmm. on the air. And so we all said, yeah, let's, let's see what you do, you know. So sure enough, he starts to play. Hey, so, doctor, what do you think that I should do? And Bergman says, no, no, stop, stop. You can't do that. I mean, this is a, you're showing a, a dirty picture, and, and we can't have it. I'll lose my license. So what happened after that is the phone started to go <laughs> off the hook. You can't censor that program. Right. You can't take that movie off the air. What are you, some sort of conservative horror? What is this? Well, at that moment, we realized that we had them. Yep. So these are real calls coming in. Real calls. Not more characters. Okay. Everybody believed it. Everybody. This was a very liberal audience. We had censored a movie. Not just liberal. They were probably stoned. Yeah, probably. Well, you know, it was early for people to be, for a big audience to be stoned out. But yeah, still, but you know, it, that, a new age audience for sure. Yeah. It new proved age. to us that we could pretend to be Anywhere. real people and that people would believe we were real. And, and so we had them, you know, that's amazing. Uh, it was, it, it was, it was, and that was the first time we worked together because of the reaction of the audience. It was immediate. Yeah. And, and, of course, Peter had a good audience by that time, so there were a lot yeah. of people listening in. Oh, he was very – in fact, he, he had a surprising experience. He decided – and I guess, Dave, this was a, a little into our work together. He decided to have a public event in Elysium Fields in Los Angeles to promote Radio Free Oz. 
And so he promoted it over the radio and it was show up on like an Easter Sunday or something in the park. Easter Sunday, 1967, the first love-in. Love-in. He called it a love-in. Yeah, Peter invented the, Point, the term love-in. Wow. Right. And he expected, you know, I don't know, a couple hundred people or something. And what was it? 3,000 people? Oh, the it's park a, was, the Legion Park was jammed with people. It was yeah. his audience. And I mean, everybody you ever saw suddenly showed up. They had had the B-in in San Francisco earlier, I think April of 67. Uh, no, no, no. It had been February. And then this was Easter Sunday of 67. And I reckon that really started a lot, that love end, you know. It went on and on. We had nothing to do with it after that, really. It was just a promotional, and and it was this huge success. Before we had an album, before we were performing, we were just on the radio. That's right. That was our our force. For listeners who will discover you now with the release of Dope Humor of the 70s, how would you describe what folks can expect to hear on this album. Well, look, there are 36 cuts, something like that. It's a two LP set with great graphics, very funny graphics, and a download option. So you can get another hour's worth of material. You'll hear some commercials. You'll hear just crazy madness. The first cut that uh, Sunday's Shakespeare, Sunday, Sunday, (laughs) is, I mean, you have to listen to it again and again because it, you think these guys are really doing this? They're doing this live on the radio? I think it's like nothing that anybody from this generation has ever heard. That's and, correct. And we offer it to you with great love from 50 years ago. What can I say? I'm excited. I want to uh, call out our engineer, Earl Jive. Yep. Because he became a player with us. Yep. He, he would drop in sound effects and music cuts unexpectedly, that we would have to respond to. I can still remember when we were doing your Mark Time skit for the first time, he dropped in a a sound like, and from that we got this alien that was screwing into your brain. We we would improvise off of everything that was going on. Uh, I wrote a piece called The Chinchilla Show, which uh, it was so much fun to do. And it was about, it was called Mutant Blues. They were mutated uh, chinchillas, and you could raise them at home for fun and profit. And Austin took the script, and he improvised off of the script without having read it, really, maybe looked at it, and was funny as hell and revealed things about the skit that I would have never been able to write, you know, hmm. just on my own. That's the thing is you offer your material to three other guys who are as good as you or better and say, right, go, go, go with it. You know, there was very little ownership. I always thought of the Firesend Theater as four witches around a cauldron. Oh, I love that. And somebody would throw in an eye of Newt, uh, Gingrich, and somebody else would throw in a, a foot which was on a ruler, and out of that would come some kind of comedy skit without ownership. Because by the time that you tasted it, you know, it was a combination of all of these surreal and funny ideas. And we worked together for a very long time. Yes, we took time off. There were divorces and suicides and breakups and arguments. I mean, look, four fiery, crazy, eccentric guys who managed to stay together for over 50 years 
writing together and loving one another and, and coming up with all this crazy material. But it came out of that radio experience, came out of dope humor in the 70s, came out of trust, right? You know, it, the society at that time was very trustful. You would pass a joint from one person to another, and you didn't think for a moment that, well, maybe that person's got herpes, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, he just passed the joint and everybody would get stoned together and happy. Uh, during the Vietnamese war, they brought uh, CIA brought in this elephant tranquilizer dope, which absolutely killed the whole movement, be, you know, because <laughs> instead of like, <laughs> you know, it was, that, that's another, another story, I guess, uh, by the way, that was not dope humor. It was not dope humor. No, it was yeah. a dope death, whatever. But anyway, it was a very tumultuous time, the 60s. And we found solace in working together and expressing really some pretty radical, funny, um, anti-societal ideas. For me, what we were always trying to do was to deprogram the people who were hip to us and were still under the thrall of commercial radio and commercial television, Hmm. okay? And by making parodies of these things, they could not hear the real stuff anymore without questioning it, if Hmm. you will, you know? (laughs) So, Dave, how do you feel? Yeah, no, I think think that's very true, that these were not like Saturday Night Live parodies of real commercials. These were bugs in your head. They were not for real products. They were for a surreal something that kind of resembled something like a product. Ralph Spoilsport, who started out selling cars, ended up selling used body parts. That's right. Well, your friends are falling apart around you like rotten fruit. You can, you know, get body parts made in America for from Americans. Yeah. The other thing I think about the long-lasting career is there was a huge amount of writing. I mean. Millions yeah. of words of writing. We, we must have written 10 novels together. Easily. So the cumulative work, which we've been trying now that we're in our senior years, uh, we're trying to bring literally everything out so that people can see not only what we did on the radio, these miraculous things that happened on the radio, in your head, at home, on stage where you could see us performing and big and live and costumes and all of that. Yep. yep. And down to the end of our careers together, the last performances the four of us did, we're standing in front of a music stand with our scripts in our hands. In front of a microphone. In front of a microphone, playing, just mm. playing with each other for, I have to say, a really adoring audience. You oh, know? yeah. And that's the other thing is for 50 years, more than 50 years, we've been friends with our audience. Mm. We've had a personal relationship. Phil was talking about, you know, uh, writing for them. I remember saying, wait till they hear this. Wait till they hear what we have to say. Everything you know is wrong. (laughs) It's wrong. Wait till they hear that. That's true. So, so that kind of relationship with the audience, and we still have it on Facebook. There are still people from 50 years ago who were in the audience for yep. dope humor of this. Wow, that's and amazing! Just shout out to Edgar Bullington, right? Who was there sitting on the floor while Edgar we were Bullington, doing this. That's right. People came into this tiny radio studio. Yep. And just sat around, crowded around us, watching us do this. Yeah, or, or on the floor below, and and of course that <laughs> having that 
the contact with your audience. It's interesting yep. what's been going on with the coronavirus and, and the way that it's affected some of the late night comedy shows was very representative of what we had. Stephen Colbert, whom I adore, and I, I watch his show fairly religiously, he has his wife sitting over, you know, uh, to his to his right, and he's got a cameraman, and his his son does the makeup or something. They will occasionally laugh, okay? So you hear just a little burst of laughter. Well, that's what original television was like. Bob and Ray, when they were on television, they did a 15-minute show on, I think, NBC live. I started as a child actor doing live television on a show called Uncle Danny Reads the Funnies. And there's no audience, you see. But what would happen is that the cameramen and the studio people would laugh at what Bob and Ray were doing. Hmm. Actually, the camera would shake with laughter. That was the way it was. And that's kind of the spirit that we had. We were inspired by the reactions of the people who came to, you know, support us. And now I, I talk about some of this. I do in my own podcast, which is called Phil and Ted's Sexy Boomer Show. And you can find it. We've launched now, sexyboomers.com. Okay. And we knew David, among other people, Weird Al Yankovic, and, oh, my God, Melanie Chardoff. And uh, Penn Jillette, you know, the, wow. and, and, Leonard, and David. And so if you listen to David's show, again, because each one of us, four guys, has a perspective on what it is that we did hmm. and experienced, right? From right. our own psyche, our own spirit. But we all recognized and embraced the fact that we could do it together, hmm. that we were in a safe environment and could express our craziest comic ideas and know that they would fall on fallow ground. Well, I'm excited to check out the record. We have linked in the show notes where folks can check it out. I would love Phil to also include a link to sexyboomers.com. I think that's the best domain name I've ever heard. <laughs> and I look forward to hearing the record when it comes out. You go back to what we were saying about our beloved audience, and they really are. I mean, 50 years of fans is quite something. Dear friends. Uh, and they were important to us as individuals. What's changed in show business? Do you talk to individuals anymore? Luke, mm. thank God you're talking to us as an individual from your studio because the rest of the world is, you know, uh, dumb housewives of Beverly Hills. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> I mean, the rest of the world has fallen into a television reality show, which is the least real thing ever. Yes, unreality show. So truly, we feel like we come from a real world, this world of audio, this world of companionship and love and nurturing. That's the world that we come from. Mm. And, and that's what's changed in show business. You're absolutely right. That is what, what has changed. And I speak from experience because I was the announcer on Big Brother for three years. You're Previously, on Big Brother 3. So, you know, I was fueling the fire that was destroying television because it was a fun job. Hmm. And, and actually, the early uh, Big Brothers were pretty interesting because they were about individual people. It was a social experiment still at that point. It was still. Yeah, it was a very interesting social experiment. And, I, and I'm happy, you know, I was happy to be a part of it. But David's absolutely right. The, it, it, Facebook is a complete paradox, okay? Because you're speaking as an individual to 
a bunch of other individuals. But whatever you say or whatever they say is of equal weight. Mm. Okay. And what they've discovered, I don't know if you saw that, the social dilemma, that movie, but what basically is happening is that people end up talking to their own constituency, mm -hmm. to their own tribe. And it's an algorithm. It's an algorithm that they've designed to, in order to promote, you know, to narrow cast and find an audience that wants to buy, you know, uh, alien dolls with beeping hearts or something. Oh, cat, cat sweaters. Now, oh, I don't know no, this. Cat sweaters, that's cat something. Sweaters. Yeah, big on, my, on my feed, yes. Cat sweaters. <laughs> Congratulations on the upcoming release of the record, and I can't wait to check that's out the album. So. We'll get back to us once you've heard it. I absolutely will, yeah. All right, I'm saying goodbye. All right, David, Phil, thank you all so much. We'll talk to you again sometime down the road. Okay. Bye-bye. <laughs> Huge thanks once again to David and Phil for being a part of this special bonus episode of 30 Pop. And once again, thanks to their publicist, Jeff, who has been incredibly patient with me while I've been trying to get this episode put together. It was an absolute joy to have them on. That's all I've got for you today, friends. Have a wonderful rest of your week, and I'll be back next week with more retro pop culture nostalgia. See you then. 30 Pop is produced, edited, and mixed by me, Luke Bronner. Our artwork is by the amazing Heather Hale. To check out more shows from Mill U Media Group, visit millumedia.com, which is linked in the show notes for this episode. And if you have a story from 30 years ago that you want to share, leave a message on the answering machine at 30pop.com. <laughs>